1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters one through four.
0: Well, we now begin 2 Chronicles. And we'll start with the first four chapters. The first nine chapters deal with the reign of Solomon. And uh, again, just by way of uh, review, the words for what was originally one book in the minds of many scholars, the Book of Chronicles, or the words concerning the days, is what the Hebrew label applies. Or it's really a, in the Septuagint they looked at as a supplement to First and Second Kings, and First uh, and Second Kings being the political record, First and 2 Chronicles the religious record. But Chronicles, First and 2 Chronicles, have 20 whole chapters of new material and 24 parts of other chapters that are occupied with matter that was not found anywhere else. So they take the form of a history. David and Judah are the focal points. And obviously, when I say David, the dynasty of David. Um, Ezra Nehemiah and Chronicles were all apparently written together somewhat in the same style. It's also clear that a very substantial library was available to the chronicler, whether it was an individual. Most most scholars assume it was Ezra himself or a team working for him. But in any case... um, they have many public documents available to them: letters to and from Cyrus, to and from Artaxerxes, Darius, and also Artaxerxes longemonus of course. And so, uh, and the monarchy, of course, is uh, in our timeline of learning the Bible in 24 hours. You may remember how we broke that down from Saul, David, Solomon. Then, it's, after Solomon's death, at the civil war it splits into two kingdoms: the southern kingdom, which we call the House of Judah, the northern kingdom, the House of Israel, and uh, which goes from bad to worse and eventually gets obliterated by the Assyrians. But uh, Judah. Goes into captivity with the promise by God it would be for seventy years and that they would return and indeed to the very day they did, but first uh, and second Samuel uh, is paralleled uh, all the way through the end of David. But then first Kings um, picks it up from Solomon on, and first and second Kings is pretty much uh, equivalent to second Chronicles. So, as we read through second Chronicles, you may want to just follow your way through first Kings. Get, one will fill in what the other misses. And uh, as you recall, first, first we dragged through the genealogies uh, and the organization of David in, uh, in uh, First Chronicles. But now we have the reign of Solomon in nine chapters and then the, sub- the subsequent kings of the Davidic dynasty um, from chapters 10 through 36. But the first nine are the reign of Solomon. That's, of course, which we are beginning tonight. But before we do, let's get a little perspective of Solomon. Um, his name by Nathan the prophet was Jedidiah. And uh, that uh, beloved of the Lord is what it means. And that's 2 Samuel 12. Um, his, his royal name, his kingly name Shelomo, Sol- we as we say, uh, Solomon. He had a private name, an intimate name with his mother, Bathsheba, called Lemuel. And it's interesting, in Proverbs 31, it's written by her. She saw in young uh, Solomon some of the characteristics that made her nervous characteristics of David, chasing after women and what have you. So she counseled him. And it's unfortunate that he didn't didn't really follow her counsel in Proverbs 31. But uh, Solomon also wrote under pen names. He he called himself the Kohleth, the preacher. That was his label he adopted for Ecclesiastes. What many people miss is in Proverbs 30, he called himself the Aguar, the collector, collector of riddles. And that's, he gives a messianic uh, a riddle that most people miss because they don't translate the Hebrew properly. But anyway, uh, Psalm was David's second son by Bathsheba, or the first surviving son of Bathsheba. It was the first after their legal marriage in 2 Samuel 12. He, Psalm was probably born about 1035 B.C., to give you a frame of reference here. He succeeded his father on the throne probably he was 16 to 18 years old by some scholastic reckoning. And uh, he he was put on the throne before his father's death because of a plot that was afoot. Nathan and Bathsheba were concerned because of the rebellion that was begun by Adonijah. And so they encouraged and precipitated David to nail that down quickly. Adonijah was the fourth son of David. And after the death of his older brothers, Amnon and Absalom, he became the heir apparent to the throne, it would seem but Solomon, a younger brother, was preferred to him. So when his father was dying, he caused himself to be proclaimed as king prematurely. Big mistake. Nathan Bathsheba induced David to give orders that Solomon should at once be proclaimed and admitted to the throne, which they do. He, Solomon, uh, David takes his own mule and, and, and establishes public uh, testimony that Solomon's the one Adonijah realizes he's blown it. He fled and took refuge at the altar and received a pardon for his conduct from Solomon on the condition that he showed himself a worthy man. He should have quit while he was ahead. He made a second attempt to gain the throne, but was seized and put to death. And he probably would have been pardoned even then, except Solomon had eyes on Abishag, um, that um, was his father's um, concubine, that uh, had caught Solomon's eye. And the relationship between Solomon and Abishag is at least what some people believe is uh, uh, emblazoned in the Song of Songs. But that's again another story. Solomon spared the rest of the brothers who had joined Adonijah, so he probably would have spared Adonijah too, except for the Abishag factor. Abiathar was banished to Anathoth for treason, thus fulfilling an old curse for Eli. On Eli, Joab the murderer was put to death. That's what David whispered in Solomon's ears when he gave him the kingship. You got to deal with Joab. Joab was his you know, secretary of defense, so to speak, is his, his, his secretary of war or whatever. But uh, but he was. Uh, he, uh, David told him to take care of it. Shimei fell by breaking his own engagement to oath. Solomon's reverent dutifulness to his mother, amid all his other problems, appears in the narrative. You can go through carefully all the way through that Solomon looked out for his mother. Now before his death, of course, David gave parting instructions. And as soon as he had settled himself and arranged his affairs, he entered into an allegiance, excuse me, an alliance with uh, Egypt by marrying the daughter of Pharaoh. And uh, he favors her, has her in a part of it. The, when he builds his palace, he builds a fourth of it is for her. And that's the last you ever hear of her, interestingly enough. He has 700 wives, 300 concubines, but it's not clear that any of them were Israeli. So his latter ha- now his first half, he starts out pretty well. But the last half of his reign is clouded by idolatries. He got involved with all these women for political reasons, but these women he were, were pagan, and what initially was just his tolerance to allow them to do their thing gradually becomes it, it, it causes him to gradually get entangled with them and causes him to become in effect, apostate. Seven hundred wives can you imagine? 300 concubines. Solomon took seven years to build the temple. That's well understood. What what many people miss is that he took four years before he began. After being enthroned and that incredible speech by his father David, you'd think that he would have jumped right in and got it done. It took four years before he picks up on it. After spending seven years to build the temple, and we're going to talk a lot about that in the coming chapters it took, he spent 13 years building his royal palace. And let me tell you, that is wild. We'll take it. it was 100 cubits long. Cubits about a foot and a half, we assume. Uh, you know, it was, It's half as long as a football field. 50 broad, 30 high. The lofty roof was pervo- supported by 45 cedar pillars. So the hall was like a forest of cedar wood. So it's sometimes called the House of the Forest of Lebanon. That was a title that, that uh, scholars use. In front of this house was the porch of the pillars. In front of that, again, was the hall of judgment, or his throne room. And there's a fourth part of the whole thing that was set apart as the residence of the daughter of Pharaoh, the queen consort. And we don't read anything else about her. Uh, So far, I haven't found, I've been canvassing all kinds of sources, haven't found anything meaningful on her. He wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Uh, there's a famous incident where the Queen of Sheba, that's an Arabian queen from the south, had heard about him and couldn't believe it. And uh, she, uh, this secluded Arabian queen, um, despite the risks and the danger of travel in those days, put forth the energy to visit because she couldn't believe what she'd heard. And when she finally sees it, she's totally undone. Is the half of it wasn't told me, and uh, there is some some scholars believe there was a marriage before she returns to Arabia. Another side of Solomon you generally don't get into, but I'll mention just in passing. We'll talk about some of this when we wrap up Solomon later. But uh, everything about Solomon is in sixes: six steps to his throne, uh, six of this and six of that. Uh, You'll find sixes all through which if, you're in a, if you look at it in a mystical sense, and the sword level, there's four levels of interpretation in the Hebrew. The fourth one, much can be made of this. His annual salary was 666 talents of gold, which is a huge salary, but it's mentioned twice that it's 666, which is, uh, it was, and to some, that's, that's sometimes called in the Hebrew a remez, a hint of something deeper or some of the rabbis says, it's a sign that says, dig here. So There's more to it than that. It's interesting that the seal of Solomon is a well-known occultic symbol. It gets adopted in the 14th century AD, and they called it the Shield of David. And the official symbol of the government of Israel is the shield, the Magandavid, the Shield of David. But it has an earlier occultic history as the Seal of Solomon. It's used by, uh, in occultic in, in terms so uh, that may or may not be relevant to studies but it's interesting that Solomon all through the scripture, the New Testament is always used adversely the lilies of the field even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these in other words, it's always used as a standard that ain't quite there and so if you're, if you're a mystic and you're looking at this, it, it, there may be far more lying beneath the surface than is typically gotten into. Well, let's just jump in now with this sort of broad perspective. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, Solomon now takes over. The Sol- and Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord of God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. Boy, what a great start. But the name of the game for all of us, not just Solomon, finishing well is the name of the game. Not how you start, but how you finish. Then Solomon spake unto all Israel, and to the captains of the thousands, and of the hundreds, and of the judges, and to every governor in all Israel, the chief of the fathers. So Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was still at Gibeon. For there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. That's where it still stands. And, but the Ark of God had David brought up from uh, Geriath-Jerim, to the place which David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now, Solomon and uh, the leaders make a pilgrimage to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices there. That's where the brazen altar was. The altar was made by um, Bezalel, and that's mentioned in Exodus 31, under Moses' direction. This is the same altar that's still there in bronze, still located there. Uh, The ark itself was in Jerusalem, where it had been brought from kiriath Jerem by David. And uh, that's, we, we, we looked at that back in uh, 1 uh, Chronicles uh, 15. But they're up at, um, up there at the brazen altar that uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made. He put before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the congregation sought unto it. And Solomon went up thither to the brazen altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of the congregation, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. A thousand bullocks, think about it. Just the logistics of doing that is a non-trivial episode. In that night did God appear to Solomon. Wow, that's interesting. In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. Very famous event. People who know little else about Solomon forget. This is a very interesting, this, is, this is one of Solomon's finest hours, in my mind. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Bear in mind, he's a young kid. He's probably 16, 17, 18, something in that neighborhood. And Israel is huge, small by some of the pagan standards, but still it's a huge, many millions of people. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this people that is so great? Solomon is overwhelmed with the challenge ahead of him, and what he asks for is wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, chokhmah, refers to discernment and judgment. Knowledge refers here to the practical know-how in everyday affairs. He needs to get street smart fast. Okay, wisdom and wisdom and knowledge. God said to Solomon, "Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked for riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet has asked for long life, but asked." has asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people forever, whom I have made thee king. In other words, all the obvious things that you and I would have probably listed first, he didn't even mention. God's pleased with this. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee. In other words, he gets what he asked for. And I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had that had been before thee. Neither shall there be there any after thee have the like. Wow, he didn't ask for that, but God says he was so pleased with what he did ask for, he laid it out. out. Then Solomon came from his journey to the high place that was Gibeon, to Jerusalem, from before the tabernacle of the congregation, and reigned over Israel. So far, so good. We're off to a great start. Whoops. Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which he placed in the chariot cities, uh, and with the king at Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17, is where Moses admonishes the kings of Israel not to traffic in horses or chariots. But I guess Solomon figured that's out of date. That was back then, where t- times are changing. And he apparently did this v- very well. They multiplied. He was world famous for the quality of what he trafficked in here, 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which he placed in the chariot cities and and with the king of Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn, and the king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. And they fetched up and brought forth out of Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so, he, and so b- brought they out horses of all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria by their means. One of the major cities that's the centroid of all this commerce with horses and chariots is Begiddo. The Tel Megiddo is about 20 layers deep of different layers through history. But it also is, is, was apparently one of the several major um, commercial centers for Solomon. And uh, so uh, we move on to chapter 2. And Solomon determined to build a house for the name of the Lord and a house for his kingdom. Solomon told out three score and ten thousand men. Three score, score is twenty, so that's sixty and ten, seventy thousand 70,000. And Solomon uh, 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 sold out three score and ten men, a thousand men to bear burdens, and fourscore, score, in other words, eighty thousand, to hew in the mountain, and three thousand six hundred to oversee them. And Solomon sent to Hiram the king of Tyre, saying, As thou didst deal with David my father, and didst send him cedars to build him a house to dwell in, even so deal with me. Hiram the king of Tyre, a key guy, a very close friend of David's, and he also becomes a very close friend of Solomon, and they become partners in worldwide commerce. Harman entered into an alliance, uh, assisted uh, David in build, uh, building his palace, by sending him skill. He had all kinds of skilled workmen, and all, kind, all kinds of special skills, uh, not just, the, not just but he also was a major source of the lumber, cedar trees and, and fir trees. So after the death of David, it's not surprising that he entered into a favorable relationship with Solomon, and assisted him in building the temple. So that's all very straightforward. But he also ends up partnering. Solomon had a, a seaport down in Ezion-geber down at the uh, at the Gulf of Aqaba, and uh, uh, they, that gave Hiram, king of Tyre, access to a whole another whole uh, avenue of trade. Verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 2, Behold, I build a house to the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him and to burn before him sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, and for the burnt offerings, morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, and on the new moons, and on the solemn feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. That ordinance will be kept in the millennium. The only time the temple in the millennium is open is on Shabbat and the new moons. And the house which I build is great, for the great is our God above all gods. But who is able to build him a house, seeing that heaven and and heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him? Send me now therefore a man cunning to work in gold, and in silver, and in brass, and in iron, and in purple, and in crimson, and blue, that can skill to grave with cunning men that are with me in Judah and in Jerusalem, whom David my father did provide. Send me also cedar trees, fir trees, and algum trees out of Lebanon, for I know that thy servants can skill to cut timber in Lebanon. And behold, my servant shall be with thy servants, even to prepare me timber in abundance for the house which I'm about to build shall be wonderfully great. And behold, I will give to thy servants, the hewers that cut timber, 20,000 measures of beaten wheat and 20,000 measures of barley and 20,000 baths of wine and 20,000 baths of oil. Then Hiram the king of Tyre answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, because the Lord hath loved his people, he hath made thee king over them. Hiram said, moreover, blessed be the Lord God of Israel that made heaven and earth, who hath given to David the king a wise son, endued with prudence and understanding, that he might build a house for the Lord and a house for his kingdom. And now I have sent a cunning man, endued with understanding of Hiram my father's, this is the son of a woman to be. Uh, of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre, skillful to work in gold and in silver and brass and iron and stone and timber and purple and blue and fine linen and crimson, and also to grave any manner of graving, and to find out every device which shall be put to him with the, thy cunning men and with the cunning men of my Lord David thy father. Now, this guy that was sent is uh, Huram Abi. Uh, it's a, he's a half-Israelite. Uh, his mother was from the tribe of Dan. Yet, according to 1 Kings 7, verse 14, it says the mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. Now, if you compare these two, what I've spared you, by the way, going through all these lists, the commentators are full of trying to reconcile what appear to be discrepancies, the names spelled a little differently, and all this. We didn't waste any time on that. But here's an example of something I wanted to highlight. Uh, There's apparently a discrepancy between 1 Kings 7 and here where on the one hand is this, as the mother of this, this specialist that, that Hiram sent down, has a name similar to his in a sense, um, is from the tribe of Dan or Naphtali. And this, I think, is a warning flag to all of us. Because, it, you see, his mother was from the tribe of Dan, we know that. But in 1 Kings 7, it says she was from the tribe of Naphtali, but Naphtali is being used as a geographic reference. You follow me? And there's a lot of confusion, and a lot of this is going to come up later in the book of Chronicles. When you speak of someone that comes from a region, Ephraim or something, you generally mean the geography of the tribal area as was allocated under Joshua. Don't presume that those tribal um, identities were preserved. They commingled. Okay? Um, if I say to you that... Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I, I came from California. That you, you understand that to be a geographic reference. But if the word California was also the name of the tribe that originally inherited, you wouldn't be sure, if I, was I ethnically derived from that tribe, or did I just come from that geography? All the names of the 12 tribes, Benjamin, Simeon, Nephtali, Ephraim, are geographic areas that were assigned to those tribes originally. There are no ten lost tribes. There are a lot of people who lived in a lot of those places that are lost for a lot of reasons. And we'll get into that. Because we know there were two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah. But all the Levites, because they went into idolatry, the ones that were faithful, went south. So in the south you've got those, you've got at least three. You've got Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. So if you've got, you don't have ten lost tribes, you might have Nine. But it's not that simple. I, I we'll get into all that later. Just be alert to the fact that there is an ambiguity that you want to be alert to when someone says they're from, uh, they're from Dan, does that mean they're of the tribe of Dan, or they come from the region that is associated with Dan? There's a big difference. Okay, let's move on. Now therefore the uh, wheat, the barley, the oil, the wine, which my Lord hath spoken of him, let him send unto his servants. And we will cut the wood out of Lebanon as much as thou shalt need, and we will bring it to thee in floats by sea to Joppa, and thou shalt carry it up to Jerusalem. And Solomon numbered all the strangers that were in the land of Israel, after the numbering wherewith David his father numbered them, and they were found on 150,000 and And, 3,600. And he said three score and 10,000 of them to be bearers of burdens and four score thousand to be hewers in the mountain and 3,600 overseers to set the people at work. Whew. Okay, so we got all that set up. Now we're in chapter three, we're gonna build the temple.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Second Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.